I have the easy job, actually, because this is, I think everyone here probably knows Ellen. And if you don't, she's one of our great speakers that actually goes around and talks to everybody. And, and it's just so delightful to have her back. Uh, this will be her 13th City Club appearance over the years. So let's just, 13. First one was in 2006. So so it, so excited that she uh, that she keeps coming back because she's really busy. Um, as as all of you know, uh, Ellen runs the the Joyce Foundation, uh, president, CEO, and, and, and board member. Um, they now distribute sixty five about sixty five million dollars a year, um, and from assets of one point three billion, which managing those alone is a job in and of itself. Um, we're so happy that they're based here in Chicago, but have a national uh, national prominence. Um, so Ellen is here. She's she's often right in the middle of all the major issues in Chicago. And I think we're going to hear uh, about a couple of them today, maybe a few. Um, when she's not busy managing the Joyce Foundation, she's also on the board of the Chicago Public Edu- Education Fund, uh, Advance Illinois, who we heard from a few weeks ago, um, founding board member for Skills for America's Future. Uh, she, she really is right in the middle of just about everything and all of the... Oh, of course, Loyola. How could how could we miss Loyola? Um, although she went to Brown and <laughs> got an MBA from Northwestern University, but of course, a board member at Loyola. Uh, so we're going to hear a little bit about all of that, and um, please join me in, in welcoming our good friend of the City Club, Ellen Elberton. Well, 13 times I should be like better at this, I think, maybe, but um, it's great to be here, um, and I, want, I am going to share a little bit about the work of the Joyce Foundation, but I want to make a couple of acknowledgments first. Um, I have uh, lots of friends here, lots of team members, um, a board member, Steve Koch, and a sister whose birthday it is today. <laughs> In our family, we always say, what's better than Maggiano's for your birthday lunch? (laughs) Jane, we appreciate it. Um, Going back to the uh, Joyce team, though, they are really the folks who get the work done. Our team has really been phenomenal during this whole past couple of years. They navigated COVID and racial unrest without missing a beat. In fact, we increased our grant budget during that time. We doubled down on racial equity, which has always been at our core, and we launched two new programs during that period as well. So I really want to thank you, and if you would raise your hand for a little acknowledgement, each of you who's on the Joyce team. So even though it's been 13 times, the last time I did this was uh, three years ago in 2019, and um, it sort of feels like that should be in Roman numerals. It feels like such a long time ago. Um, and also, you know, normally when I do give a talk like this or this talk, I try to run through all of our programs. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to focus instead on one issue that I think is fundamental to everything that we do, which is our democracy. Now, generally speaking, I'm not a sky is falling type of person. You can't do the work that we do without being an optimist. 
we just work on so many huge, huge challenges. And there are a lot of things to be optimistic about. For one thing, here we are in person, and it feels really great. It feels great to see people I haven't seen in a long time. Um, I see people's... Um, uh, double take when it, it seems like my hair color has changed a little bit, you know. Um, and I, but I don't know about you, but the last couple of months have been filled with weddings and babies and birthday celebrations, which are all such joyful markers of our community. Even funerals, which had been marked by unbearable loneliness during the pandemic, are again moments in which we can come together for collective healing. Before I get to the challenges part of this conversation, and it does get a little dark, I'm warning you now, um, I want to mention a couple of really bright spots from our perspective on the policy front. Um, climate change. Thanks to tireless advocacy by so many people, our country is finally acting to address this incredibly important threat. Illinois was ahead of the curve, thanks to our legislature and our governor, when it passed the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, or CEJA, um, which commits us to a 100% carbon-free electric power sector by 2045. We led the nation in committing to that. But, of course, there's also the incredibly exciting passage of the Federal Inflation Reduction Act, which provides more than $350 billion to propel such activities in other states. A second really important point relates to fresh water. It's our most precious resource. And here in the Great Lakes, we have a ton of it. And we have the good sense to protect it. Our congressional delegation, both Republicans and Democrats together, successfully pushed earlier this year for a $1 billion investment from the bipartisan infrastructure law to clean up toxic pollution in the Great Lakes. This is the single most important restoration of the Great Lakes in history. It's an enormous win. It's, it's, it's an enormous win for residents throughout the region who will benefit from protected drinking water, better public health, and revitalized economies. A third is safety from gun violence. This year, Congress finally stepped up to pass the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Among other things, it provides millions of dollars to encourage states to establish and enforce so-called red flag laws, which identify people at risk of harming themselves or others and allow police to remove those guns. Many of the provisions in the new law, I'm proud to say, were informed by research that we have supported over the years. Obviously, it's not enough. I know there are people in this room who think it's really not enough, but if you thought nothing could happen at the federal level on guns, at least this gives us a glimmer of hope. So each of these advances are important. We're not giving up our focus on them. You can be sure that we will continue to be making grants and working hard on each, on each of the things I just mentioned. And it's all, but it's all pretty good. But here's where I go a little dark. As we emerge from the pandemic, our country just is become dangerously splintered. We've got the organized violent attempt to overturn our democracy on January 6th, the conspiracy to kidnap and harm Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the constant threats and intimidation of election workers, school board members, even FBI agents, 
The Supreme Court is wildly out of step with the majority of the country. Its rulings seek to overturn the fundamental norms on which this country operates. And gun violence continues its unrelenting march, ripping through communities coast to coast and leaving preventable tragedy in its wake. After the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and too many others, we have yet to fully face the racial fault lines that undergird our systems. These are symptoms of an existential threat to our democracy. And I think you can say that in many ways, we are in a very different and possibly a darker place than we've seen in generations. Now, I've often spoken about the importance of taking the long view when addressing complex social challenges. After all, in my view, that's the highest and best use for philanthropy. We should be the venture capital of the social sector. We should explore and invest in new ideas, and we should take well-considered risks in order to find solutions. But taking the long view is not an excuse to keep doing the same things over and over. In changing times, we have to listen to signals that new approaches are required. We must be open to new ideas and incorporate new voices into our thinking. The Foundation's mission is to advance racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in, in the Great Lakes region. This next-gen portion of our mission has really been on my mind. The alienation of some Americans, especially those in rural areas and small towns, many of whom have felt left out and disaffected, has been widely researched and widely chronicled. But current attitudes among, among young people are less understood and bring in sharp focus both the challenges and the opportunities ahead. We wanted to find out more about this, so we commissioned some research. Let me give you a couple of examples of signals we've picked up. Now, this slide is a little complicated, but the thing I want you to focus on is that it shows a shocking number of young people under 30 believe that political violence can be justified that's a scary notion, given the current political trends. People under 30 are four times more likely than those over 30 to hold this belief. Second, despite all the evidence to the contrary, and also according to new research, this same cohort believes that possessing a gun makes you safer. We know through extensive research that it is just the opposite. Possessing a gun makes you more likely to be victimized, possibly even killed. And I want to give a shout out to Nina Vinnick, a Joyce alum and the founder of Project Unloaded, who provided this research and this slide and is working so hard to change youth attitudes on guns. So Nina, round of applause for you and your work. So what signals do I take from these two data points? In part, that the next generation is angry and scared, and they have every right to be. They've been shaped and scarred by school shootings and the 9-11 attacks. There was the Great Recession, a student loan crisis, and growing racial unrest tied to police abuse, not to mention two presidential elections where the popular vote winner lost. Now, every generation has its difficult moments. My parents' generation endured a depression and World War II and the Korean War. I grew up during the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, and Watergate.
but the current generation has arguably endured as much or more. As a consequence, there is deep distrust of institutions among young people, both on the left and on the right. There is a justifiable sense that institutions and leaders have done nothing to protect them or to solve problems, and if anything, just the opposite. They feel that our social systems have failed them. As one young person said to me, and I will confess it was my own daughter, she said, it would behoove you and your friends, she said it more nicely than this, <laughs> but she used these exact words, it would behoove you and your friends to get your heads out of the sand on the fact that this generation is moving toward nihilism. Now that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but I don't think it's totally an exaggeration. And for those of you who have young people in your lives, you know, I, you're probably writing, nodding your heads a little bit. I think that's pretty heavy stuff. It's a lot to sit with. The idea that the next generation is losing faith in our country and losing faith in us. If we want people to, young people to have faith, we've got to give them something to believe in, which starts with the basics. They deserve safe communities. They deserve a quality education a clean environment, unimpeded access to the ballot, and access to well-reported, reliable information, as well as the opportunity to see yourself and your culture reflected in society. None of this happens without a functioning democracy, and that's what I, we want to focus on. I bet nearly everybody in this room is a regular voter, and I'm encouraged that turnout rose considerably in 2020 especially among voters 18 to 29. But the right to vote is too fragile to be our only frontline defense. The fact that some states are actually making it harder to vote, particularly for voters of color, may be the most un-American thing I can imagine. But as you all have read and heard, it's happening in states across the country. I will give a shout out to Illinois, which is recently listed in the top 10 easiest states to vote. So yay, yay for Illinois. Um, even more scary, there's a significant portion of Americans who don't believe in the legitimacy of the most recent election. These election deniers, as they're called, are now running for election themselves. In fact, it's likely that two downstate congressional candidates who completely reject the legitimacy of the last election are, will run and will be elected. It, it, there's an irony there that I have a hard time processing. Let me transition to the next topic, though. What concerns me the most right now is the growing tendency toward accepting violence as a legitimate response. And that's where we see a deeply unfortunate intersection between our foundation's programs on democracy and on gun violence. People don't often draw a direct line between democracy and guns. Certainly, we're all too familiar with the terror of armed and angry young men shooting up places we all thought were safe. Synagogues, shopping malls, country music concerts, most recently, the slaughter of innocents in a grocery store in upstate New York, in classrooms in Uvalde, Texas, on Main Street in Highland Park. And we know that the day-to-day -day violence experienced by communities on our south and west sides reverberates with massive pain and loss. But the growing number of young people, 
of young people who believe that violence is a legitimate response to political grievance is also a clear and present threat to us all. It's hard to maintain a free and open democracy when it feels unsafe to move through our daily lives. For decades, Joyce has invested in building a more equitable democracy. In recent years, we've seen gun violence collide with this ideal in ways that are both unexpected and troubling. Deliberate distortions by bad actors manipulating both social and tra traditional media have amplified angry rhetoric and hate group activity. There's a rising threat of political violence in our region, from armed extremists storming the Michigan Lands State House in Lansing to the shocking murder just a couple of months ago of a retired Wisconsin judge to the mounting number of people from the Midwest who've been charged in the January 6th attack. These events have led us to an unsettling conclusion that the rise of armed extremist activity and all too common threats of political violence have become a very real barrier to the effective delivery of government and to people's ability to engage civically, whether that's by voting, testifying at their state capitol, or joining a peaceful public protest. Obviously, this is not just unacceptable, un un it's unsustainable. Okay, so that's a lot. What, what can philanthropy do? We're not in law enforcement. We're not in government. What is it that we in philanthropy can try to do to um, better understand and make progress on this? We've started, a, we have a few ideas that we've started, and I want to give credit um, to the folks on the team, Tim and Carrie, who've been really carrying the, uh, carrying the weight on this. Um, one thing we have done is polling and research to help us better understand people's views, which is how we unearth the alarming signs suggesting a growing acceptance among young people of violence as a legitimate response to political dis uh, disagreement. We're learning from efforts like Nina's Project Unloaded that some strongly held views can be modified if they're better understood. And that's a really important thing that we are, that, that we're learning from this project that uh, we're supporting and Nina is guiding. We can pull together powerful new partners, such as the Anti-Defamation League and the National Urban League, who have a shared concern about the issues but have not necessarily worked together on, on those particular issues. And we, we, we have done that and, and launched a partnership just a couple of months ago. We can work with law enforcement at the local and national level to ensure the safety of our elections. And as this suggests, we kind of need a whole-of-society approach. That's exactly why each of us who plays a role in our civic ecosystem has to stand up and stand together to strengthen our democracy. Each of you probably has an issue that's top of mind that you prioritize in your personal or professional life. It might be education, violence prevention, or any one of a myriad of issues. My hope is that you see yourself and the things you care most about as part of the whole and find the intersections where we can all work together to shore up what makes our country great. One of my favorite words to express this concept, perhaps revealing my um, origin as an English major, is commonweal, which is defined simply as the welfare of the public or the public good. If we are ever going to solve the other issues we care so much about, from climate change, inequitable education, gun violence, we have to ensure that our democracy is solid, and that means joining forces, 
contributing to the common weal. This is a fragile moment for America. And what can... Sorry, I'm losing my... All right. Um, Our country needs a course correction. We need to take the wheel. We can do that by standing up and showing up for what we believe in. What What does that look like? For me, it looks like women showing up in droves this fall to protect reproductive rights. It looks like community organizations across the region who stepped up heroically during COVID to hold us accountable for an equitable recovery. It looks like support for fair and just law enforcement so that our communities feel both safe and respected. It looks like a growing number of people speaking out against our country's irrational obsession with guns to stand up for our right to live free from the threat of gun violence. And and related, it is about each of us resisting the idea that violence is an acceptable response to disputes, whether personal or political. Now, I mentioned earlier the stresses of the Great Depression, the Vietnam War, the fight for civil rights. In each case, we emerged less than perfect, but with our democracy still intact. Working together, we can do that again. We can shore up our democracy. We can become the country that our children deserve. That's my hope, and I hope you will join me. So thank you very much. We'll give Ellen a couple of minutes to get some water. Um, I have <laughs> zero questions, and I know that's wrong. So, um, don't, that's good, that's no, you don't get to go anywhere, not that quick. Oh, here come some questions. Here we go. I knew there were some coming. Um, I literally could listen to Ellen and just like write her data. How do you guys do that at Joyce? Don't you just sit there and go, oh, and she said that. And you guys do that, right? Like, oh, she said that, and she said that too. Um, I've been an Ellen fan for a long time, um, simply because she does, she comes with such passion with this stuff. And we got some over there too? Okay. Um, She comes with such passion with this information. And how timely, I don't think what she talked about could have been any more timely than right now. Um, So, oh, Mr. Garner, Charlie Garner. And I will be asking if you're a member. I don't know. This philanthropic crowd, for the most part, are members. But, you know, we like to ask because I won't say that I don't answer your question. I don't ask your question if you're not a member. (laughs) I would never do that. Now, Dan, I can't say so much for. Mr. Garner is retired, but he says, in light of COVID and Ukraine and other disasters, having given patterns changed... Are the arts and education being shorted, Ellen? Um, I think our, I think that giving patterns changed fairly dramatically during COVID. Um, Helene Gale is here, and she uh, spearheaded a, a very, very significant effort to gather um, resources from all of us, even fund, foundations like ours that didn't necessarily. Um, fund direct service or weren't so familiar with the organizations that needed help. Um, and so we committed a significant amount of money, um, thanks to Helene's leadership, 
on that. And then uh, Penny Pritzker similarly organized a statewide um, effort to raise and direct funds to organizations that were really on the front lines and serving people that really desperately needed help. So I, th I think there were, um, during the last two and a half years, those are two examples of significant commitments by a range of foundations that might not, and, and corporations that might not have otherwise funded those activities. Will it consider, uh, would, would it conti continue at that rate? I No, but it changed our thinking. I can tell you, Helene, um, you know, we launched a whole new program that Brie Perry, you want to raise your hand, Brie? Um, Brie is running um, the Lend-A-Hand program for us in part through like learning through the partnership with you and learning through the partnership with Penny, we realized how we could engage in a really significant way with community-based organizations that are addressing housing issues and food insecurity and so on. And so um, th that I think, well, Steve is on the board. He can vote for it, I hope. But we, we hope to, <laughs> we started it out as an experiment and the board has approved it each year after. And I'm, I'm very, um, confident that we will continue to spend at least a million dollars a year on activities like that. So that's maybe not a broad answer, but a specific answer. Um, the arts um, are not getting shafted. They, there's a huge effort that my friend Darren Walker at the Ford Foundation launched, um, and he made it able, he put $5 million, he, Ford Foundation put $5 million. We were able to match $5 million just to support um, arts and culture organizations in Chicago, and it was almost all new money. So that's an example of, I think, uh, you know, a, a whole of society approach and, and understanding the role of different in types of institutions in making our great city still a great city. Thank you, Ellen. I think if the philanthropic world sets the model of collaboration, we ought to follow. So um, they seem to get it right. I guess you should say you all, because the majority of you all. How many of you all in this audience are actually in the I know every hand's going to go up, right? How many of you all are actually in the philanthropic arena? Yeah. So you probably know most of those people, and I don't. So Jessica Caitlin. Is from the is Jocelyn the organization? Yes. Okay. What intersection? This is a good question. Do you see between mental health and the deep seated political violence? Um, well, it's interesting. There was a section of the speech that I cut because I was getting so dark that I could. <laughs> um, there is a mental health crisis in our country that is particularly affecting young people. There's no doubt about it. And I don't think we even are, we, we're not even beginning to understand the breadth and depth of that crisis. Um, I know that, you know, there's polling that may come out soon that suggests that young people feel it's the number one issue in their lives right now. And I believe, I believe that to be true. The, the idea of linking um, mental health with violence is really a fraught one, and it is something that I don't think is a very productive way to think about um, the issues of violence in our community because it, 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 it conflates a whole lot of issues and in some ways makes excuses for behavior that 
uh, you know, are, is not productive. Thank you. Patrick Kennedy, are you here? Hiding back there, we didn't see you. So I like this question, and I'm very interested to hear what your answer is going to be. It says, how about a mayoral run? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I sent out a couple notes to good friends that I was announcing today that I am um, not running for mayor. <laughs> because I wanted to clear the field for, you know, one of them. But... <laughs> See, we ask all questions here at City Club. Christy says, one of the likely contributors to the... In Christy Hefner, in case you're all wondering. I'm not one of those one-name people, but Christy is. So, <laughs> One of the likely contributors to the increased positive feeling about owning, owning a gun is the increased concern a lot of crime and public safety. I'm sure I'm butchering this question. This is an issue from front and center in Chicago and may many others, cities and towns. What actions are not being taken here do you see as having the potential to meaningful, meaningfully impact this? I lost you, Christy. What, so the question was that I'm I believe it's likely that one of the contributors to this increase in people's feeling that they'd be safer if they have a gun is the increased worry about public safety and fear of crime. This is an issue that's front and center here in Chicago, as well as many other cities and towns. With your access to research and your thoughtfulness, what are there, are there things, Ellen, that you are aware of or have seen that you think that are not being done here? That could be being done that would have a meaningful impact on crime and public safety. Yeah, um, I, I don't. I I don't want to get into criticizing what's going on in Chicago in particular, but I do think that if people feel safe, and they should feel safe, they should be allowed to feel safe. Then you you do reduce. You know, you if your if your thesis is right that that's why people are carrying guns, which I think it probably is. The goal is to make people feel safer. Um, and I, beyond that, I, I don't have a detailed way of answering. It's a very good question, but I don't, I don't really have a great answer to it. Thank you, Ellen. Um, I think we could literally talk to Ellen for and listen to her for another hour. Wouldn't it be great just to have a dialogue to sit and just ask questions? It's an idea, huh, Dan? Did she say she's stepping down? Amanda? Amanda? Oh, we already have it. Um, I think having been here for 13 times. <laughs> do you want me to ask this? Okay. Um, having been here 13 times and being the record breaker for all speeches, I think that's pretty awesome.